going to finish the epistle to the Ephesians today uh, in anticipation of the fact that the bishop will be the teacher in this class next week. Uh, the bishop is here for confirmation next week. And um, just so you're forearmed, um, we have 70 confirmands. Um, so that is great news. But bring a pack lunch and a pillow and... Um, Actually, we're doing everything in our power to sort of keep things on track and sort of keep it flowing, so it, it, hopefully it won't be too long, but that's a wonderful thing to, in, in any parish to have 70 uh, confirmands. Bear in mind that there are some churches that don't have 70 individuals in church on Sunday, so 70 confirmands, that's, that's wonderful news, adults and children alike, so come and support the bishop next week, but he will be taking this class next week, so we're going to try... Uh, by God's grace, to finish out the epistle to the Ephesians today. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. And we're going to go ahead and read through uh, the end of the book. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Titius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Well, last week we started this section, this latter part of the sixth chapter of Ephesians, and we began talking about this whole notion of spiritual warfare. And I just want to go back and briefly review because this is very important. And this whole section about the whole armor of God, which is perhaps one of the most familiar sections of this particular letter, is predicated on what goes before. Paul makes it very clear in this section that as Christians, you and I are in a life of struggle. I pointed out to you last week that you become a Christian, you do not sign on to a cruise ship. You sign on to a battleship. And a former generation of Christians seem to understand that. We highlighted the fact that that was reflected oftentimes in some of the great hymns. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, for example, or Martin Luther's, a mighty fortress is our God. 
And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. An older generation of Christians understood that. And I said that's important because that is not the way the Christian gospel is presented to many people today. Christianity, when it is proclaimed to many people today, is not proclaimed as an entrance into a life of conflict. It is normally portrayed as an exit out of a life of conflict. Come to Jesus and all of your troubles, all of your problems are going to be taken care of. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus Christ does bring us a great many benefits, not the least of which is the peace which passes human understanding, a peace which the world cannot give to us. But we need to understand that the Christian life is not an easy life. The retirement benefits are extraordinary. But the present life is anything but easy. Jesus himself, I think this is to his credit, acknowledged that. Jesus did not share the gospel the way we might sell a product by accentuating the positive and eliminating the negative. Jesus actually said, anyone who would want to be my disciples must first take up his cross, deny himself, and follow after me. Well, that's hardly accentuating the positive. And yet that's what Jesus said. He said, yet... Whoever seeks to save his life in this life will what? Gain it. Whoever seeks to lose his life will gain it. And whoever seeks to gain his life or his soul in this life will ever surely lose it. So we need to understand that we're involved in a battle. And we should not be surprised if we are under attack. In fact, that's one of the sure signs that you actually are living out the Christian life, that you are facing opposition from the culture, you're facing opposition from the world. There's an old expression that comes out of World War II. It was used by pilots and those who were on bombing missions. They used to say, you only catch flak when you're over the target. You know what flak is, don't you? It's anti-aircraft fire. And that's how they knew they were over the target when they started to catch flak. Well, oftentimes in life, that's the way it is as a Christian. You'll know that you're over the target when you begin to get flack, when you begin to get opposition and pressure from the outside culture. So Paul makes it very clear that Christian life is a struggle. And he makes it very clear who our struggle is against. He said our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now I pointed out last week that the minute you say that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, people begin to tune out because they think, well, if it's not flesh and blood, then it's not real. Because we live in a world in which we are skeptical of anything that is in the spiritual realm. But the early Christians were not skeptical about these things. What's more, Jesus was not skeptical about it. It's very interesting to note that all four of the Gospels begin in a slightly different way. You ever notice that? Matthew and Luke have these genealogies and they tell the story of Jesus' birth. John's Gospel goes back even before that. In his prologue, he talks about the pre-existent Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mark's gospel doesn't tell us anything about the pre-existent Logos, and he doesn't tell us anything at all about Jesus' genealogy or his birth. Instead, Mark begins his narrative where? On the banks of the Jordan River with John the Baptist. Now what's interesting is that while all four of the gospels begin in a slightly different way, they all converge at that point. The story of Jesus all comes into focus there on the banks of the Jordan River where Jesus goes down into the waters to be baptized by John and John tries to prevent him. 
Why does John try to prevent him? Because it's a baptism for repentance. That's what it is. John came out into the wilderness saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king has arrived, so now it's time to get serious about this. And of course, Jesus comes down to be baptized by John, and John tries to prevent him because Jesus has no need of repentance. In fact, John says, if anybody should be baptized, it should be me. You should be baptizing me, not the other way around. And Jesus said, no, this is to fulfill all righteousness. A very powerful scene because what Jesus is doing is he is formally associating with us in spite of the fact that he's nothing like us. It's his way of saying, I am prepared to take upon myself the burden for sin by associating with these people even though I am nothing like them. And you know he goes down into the waters and he is baptized by John and as he comes out of the water, what happens? All the Gospels tell it. We're told that the the heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. I, I describe it as a coronation ceremony because that's really what it is. God the Father bestowing his grace, mercy, and what's more, his honor upon the Son. It's this great moment. But what is the very next thing that happens to Jesus? This is this great moment. The next thing we're told is that he is driven out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by the devil. Now, the reason I tell you all of that is just to remind you that if Jesus took the devil and spiritual things seriously, then we ought to do the same as the followers of Jesus Christ. It just stands to reason. So Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but instead he says our struggle is against what? Against the rulers, the authorities, and the powers. And we looked at those closely last week. We said rulers are not just talking about individuals. We're talking about regions. A person who rules over something rules over a region. He has dominion or influence over a region. And there are certain parts of the world that are very, I think, demonic. They are dark places in the world. And if you've ever been to them, you get a sense of that. That was often true of many parts of the British Isles in a previous day. I quoted to you from that poem by William Blake. It refers to those dark satanic mills. And it would take literally centuries for Christianity to drive that darkness out. There are some parts of the world that are just dark. There are some parts that were lightened, but now they are becoming darkened as we allow these things to creep back in. But Paul says that's one of the things we're struggling against. He said we're struggling against the authorities. What does he mean by that? Not again just individuals, but the values, those things that have influence or authority over our lives. And then he says powers, and we said powers really here is what we would think of as authorities. That is to say controlling influences, those things that tell us what the standards of a particular culture ought to be. Hollywood is a great example of controlling influences today. The media is a great example of controlling influences today. So Paul says this is what we are battling against, and that is why I said in Bunyan's great work, Pilgrim's Progress, he talks about this picture of the Christian, the main character in the story, being in a constant battle against a serious foe, Apollyon. Now, that's a word from the Old Testament, or excuse me, from the book of Revelation, which means the disruptor. And that's what the devil comes to do. He comes to disrupt our lives, to disrupt the joy, the peace, the hope that we might otherwise have. Now, we said this is a serious enemy that we are battling against. That's why Luther said his craft and his power 
are great. Peter describes them as a roaring lion. Revelation, we said, describes them as Apollyon, the great disruptor. Furthermore, he is crafty. We pointed that out. He's been around for a long time, longer than you and me, and he's learned a few things. He has been an astute student of the human condition, and he knows how we act. And he can anticipate, if he does one thing, what we will do in response to it. He doesn't always come as a roaring lion. He does come to devour, but he doesn't always appear as a roaring lion. Sometimes he appears as an angel of light. You'll recall that he beguiled Eve. He tricked her. He didn't terrify her. So he's crafty. And we said he knows when to strike. Oftentimes he strikes when a believer is young in the faith. They've confessed their sins and they've repented and they're trying to walk on the narrow path. But then they fall, as we all do from time to time. And the devil comes along and accuses them and says, Ah, well, you were never a Christian to begin with. Look at this. If you were serious about your faith, you would never have done what you have just done. That was a passing fancy. So he accuses us. That's exactly what he does. He plants the seed of doubt. He even did that with Jesus, you'll recall. Jesus had just come up out of the waters of baptism. The Father had said, This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. But how does the temptation go in the wilderness? The devil comes to him and says, If... You are the Son of God. Turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down off the pinnacle of the temple. For short, He will not allow you to even dash your foot against a stone. He will send His angels to bear you up. What's interesting is if. You notice that word if? If you were really a Christian, you would not be acting the way you are. If you were really a Christian, you would feel much more guilty for the things that you have done. That's how the devil comes. He comes and he accuses us. And oftentimes he does that when a believer is young. He does it when a believer is afflicted because oftentimes when we're going through a difficult time and people can't understand it, we have a tendency to withdraw. I have noticed that particularly with people who have lost a loved one. I can't tell you how many times people have told me after they've lost a spouse in particular how difficult it is just to get out in public again. Sometimes going to church is very difficult because they have to run into people. They don't even like to go to the grocery store because they're afraid of running into people. And if they run into people, what happens? They've got to go through the whole thing again and then they begin to fall apart in public and they just, it's so much easier to do what? To sort of withdraw. But of course, it's when we're withdrawn that we're isolated. It's when we're withdrawn and isolated that we're prey to the enemy. That's exactly what the enemy wants to do. He wants to isolate us. And defeat us in detail. So the enemy often comes when a believer is afflicted, which is why we should always, always, especially in times of difficulty, make church a priority because we need our fellow believers. We need to bear one another's burdens. He comes not only when the believer is feeling down and out, but he also comes when the believer is feeling victorious. When we've won a great victory, then we're vulnerable. Why? Because oftentimes we're not on the watchtower prepared for the enemy's assault. Certainly he came at Jesus after he had been victorious there along the banks of the Jordan. He comes when the Christian is idle. We had that great illustration of King David. When kings went out to war, David stayed home. The old expression is, idle hands are the devil's workshop, and that was certainly the case with King David. As Christians, we should not be idle Retirement, incidentally, is not a word that you are going to find anywhere in the Bible. 
Which is not to say that you can't retire from your career, but what I can say is you can't retire from the Christian life. You need to be involved in some sort of Christian ministry. You need to be engaged in the work of the Lord. So he comes when the Christian is isolated. Also, he comes when the Christian is dying. And we talked about that. Oftentimes, that's when he comes. Now, if you're a believer, nothing can pluck you out of the hand of the Lord. I believe that. I don't believe that you can lose your salvation once you become saved. I don't believe that. For the very simple reason, if we're saved by grace through faith and not by works... And you say, oh, somebody could lose their salvation. Well, then what that really teaches is that you're saved by grace, but you maintain it by your works. And see, that undercuts the whole message of grace entirely. But nevertheless, just because your eternal security is something that is in the hands of God, that does not mean that the enemy is not going to assault you, particularly at the end of your life. I quoted this last week, William Gurnall, but I went through it quickly. I just want to read it again because he got it right. He was a great Elizabethan divine, member of the Church of England, but of the Puritan party. And this is what he said. At the hour of death, when the saint is down and prostrate in his bodily strength, now this coward falls upon him. It's interesting. He describes the devil as a coward. Why? Because he comes when we're weak. (laughs) He doesn't come when we're ready. He comes when we're vulnerable. As they say of the natural serpent, he is never seen at his length till dying. So this mystical serpent never strains his wit and wiles more And when his time is thus short, the saint is even stepping into eternity. And now he treads upon his heel, which if he cannot trip up so as to hinder his arrival in heaven, yet at least to bruise it, that he may go with him and more pain thither. We have the best example of this anywhere in Scripture. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was facing the prospect of his own crucifixion. It's what he came into the world for. I've not come to call the what? The righteous, but to call sinners. Jesus Christ came into this world and was born in Bethlehem for the express purpose of dying. I always like to point out that is the real significance of Bethlehem, my friends. The significance of Bethlehem is not simply that God took on human flesh. The significance of Bethlehem is that God took on human flesh in order to die as a human. The significance of Bethlehem is that it is the first step on the road that ultimately leads to Calvary. If Jesus Christ had simply come into this life, taken on human flesh, and then departed and gone back to heaven, you and I would be able to say that at one point, God came down and walked among us and understood what it was like to be a man, but we would be no better off. Why? Because our sins would not have been atoned for or paid for. Now, Jesus Christ came into this world to do what? to suffer the curse of the damned for you and for me on the cross and to pay in full the debt that we owed. And Jesus knew that. His whole life, the the cross was a shadow over his entire life. And yet never did the devil assault him more. The temptation in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry was nothing compared to the temptation that he faced where? In Gethsemane. And what did he do? He didn't want to be isolated. He went to his friends and he said, watch with me. Now, they didn't, unfortunately. He said, how sad it is that the flesh is willing, or the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But Jesus knew he didn't need to be isolated. He was fully God, but he was fully man. And he struggled with all the things that we struggled with. 
He was tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. And Gethsemane is a perfect example of that. There at the very end, the devil was straining himself more than ever. He knew that he might not be able to deter Christ from going to the cross, but he was going to make it as painful for him as possible to embrace his mission in life. Now, if that is true of Jesus Christ, and Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. As the world treated me, so the world is going to treat you. Should we expect anything less than struggle in our lives as Christians? Now, as I said, part of the problem is that we live in a different kind of age. We think we're more enlightened than people lived in a former age. 1794, Thomas Paine wrote a famous book, Most of you, I think, are probably familiar with it. The Age of Reason. Most people don't know the subtitle. I had to look all over the Internet to find a cover that actually had the subtitle. The subtitle of The Age of Reason was Being an Investigation of True and Fabulous Theology. True, over and against false theology, and fabulous, over and against supernatural theology. That's what Thomas Paine was getting at. Basically, what he was saying is we don't believe in that sort of supernatural thing anymore. There may be a God, but if he is a God, he's like a great clockmaker. He winds up the world and he sets it on the mantle and it goes on its own, but he does not interfere. He does not interfere. That's the picture. It's the deist form. That's right, the deist form of God. Instead, it's the controlling influence of this life that really matter. We see that today. What are the controlling influences we face? Well, the media telling us what really matters, what's really important. Hollywood, we pointed out before, academia. And sometimes, I'm sorry to say, even the church. Sometimes even the church frowns upon these things. All things that are designed to lead us astray from what the biblical witness really is. When I think about the pulpit, I'm reminded of something Martin Luther once said. Luther said, if you're ever looking for the devil, be sure to look in the pulpit. Now, it's probably true. In fact, I know a few places where you can look if you're really looking for him. So what do we do in that kind of a situation when we are facing that kind of opposition? And it's serious opposition. Well, the good news is that we are not alone. How did Luther put it in that great hymn? Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same, and He must win the battle. So we are in a battle, but we are not left to fend for ourselves. We have a great captain who leads us in battle, sets us an example, and furthermore, according to what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, equips us with every spiritual grace necessary in order not only to be victorious or survive, but to be more than conquerors. That's the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, to be more than conquerors. So we're going to take a look today at the various pieces of spiritual armor that we are told has been supplied to us and that we are to put on. And by the way, these spiritual pieces of armor are not something that you put on once for all time. Some of them you put on once for all time. Some of them you have to put on daily. I don't know if you've ever seen a suit of armor, but it's not the thing that you want to sleep in. 
It's rather uncomfortable. So you've got to put it on every day when you rise up. We have a song that we sometimes sing. It's a modern hymn. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ your captain. That is exactly what Paul is saying here. Church, arise and put your armor on. Now, when Paul talks about the armor here, each of these pieces corresponds to pieces of armor that were carried by a Roman soldier. Paul, of course, operated in a Roman culture, a Greco-Roman culture in the first century. This was the age of the famed Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Roman Empire was vast and it was powerful, and uh, it maintained the peace by force. Everywhere you went uh, in the ancient world, you would encounter Roman soldiers, legionnaires. There was always at least a small company of soldiers, even in the smallest of villages. There was a large contingent uh, near Jerusalem that was brought in. The headquarters was actually at a place called Caesarea Maritima. Some of you have been there. Paul was eventually imprisoned there at one point. But they would be brought into Jerusalem. And there was a large fortress there in Jerusalem called the Antonia Fortress. Portions of it are still there today. When you go to Jerusalem, you can see them. That was the headquarters of the Roman garrison. Anybody who lived in Jerusalem saw Roman soldiers. When Paul went to the city of Philippi and preached the gospel there, he faced a great deal of opposition because some people accused him of advocating things that were not lawful for Romans to practice. Well, that was a city that had been settled by former legionnaires or soldiers of the Roman army. They were very proud of their Roman identity. And they took offense at some of the things that Paul was saying. So Paul was familiar with Roman soldiers. He saw them. And furthermore, you'll notice that throughout his writings, I think Paul was somebody who was interested in, in the military life, and I think he was also interested in athletics because he frequently draws his illustrations from the military and from athletics. He talks about, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and now there is stored up for me a crown of life, the crown of victory, the laurel wreath, which the Lord himself will give me on that day. So Paul frequently uses these images, and that's the image that he employs here. He uses the image of the military here. And every one of the pieces of the spiritual armor that he talks about corresponds to a piece of armor that he would have seen on the body of a Roman soldier. So let's take a look at them. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There was a famous Chinese evangelist some years ago called Watchman Nee. If you ever pick up one of his books, you find them on Amazon. He's a wonderful writer. Watchman Nee was his name, N-E-E. But he wrote a book called Sit, Stand, Walk. And basically what he said was that, and it was a, incidentally, it was an exposition of Ephesians. One of the things he said is that Jesus Christ has won the victory for us. I like to point out sometimes that you and I may be involved in a conflict, but we need to remember as Christians that the outcome of the conflict is not in doubt. If Easter teaches us anything at all, Easter teaches us that Jesus has already won the war. Now, we are still involved in battles, but it's a mop-up operation. But we've already won the war. Jesus has already won the war. The enemy doesn't want to admit that he's defeated sort of like one of those Japanese soldiers who never got the message that Japan had surrendered the war and stays on some island for the next 40 years awaiting to be relieved. Well, that's sort of where the enemy is right now. We have already won the war, but we are engaged in a mop-up operation. 
And what Watchman Nee was basically saying was that Christ has already won it. That's why he says, sit. In the ancient world, when a judge came in to render a sentence, he would stand up. Now, that's different from the way it works in our system today. The judge comes in and sits down at the bench and renders a decision and drops the gavel. But in the ancient world, a judge would come in and he would stand up, render the decision, and then he would sit down, and sitting down signified that it was final. It was like the dropping of the gavel. This is why we're told that Jesus Christ in the creed, when he had finished his work and on the third day rose again, ascended into heaven and sat down where? At the right hand of the Father. That was the signal that his work was finished. It was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world once offered. It was done. So Watchman Nee says that in our battle, we need to remember that Christ has already won the victory. And he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And now our job is what? What's the second part of that? Watch, sit, stand, and walk. Second part of that is for us to stand our ground, to stand in the victory that Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He's won the war. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to do what? Stand against the devil. Your job is to defend the territory that's already been won. Jesus has already conquered. Your job is to stand and defend the territory that has already been won. He says, first of all, stand then with the belt of truth. With the belt of truth fastened on. The belt was not technically a part of the Roman soldier's armor, like the breastplate or the helmet, but it was an essential part of his equipment because it held all of the other pieces of equipment in place. And furthermore, it sort of hiked up his skirt so that he was capable of running. And it was fastened. It was made of leather. It was a leather girdle. It was fastened tight, and it made a person feel strong. And as I said, every other piece of armor was connected to it. The breastplate had to be connected to the belt. The sword was connected to the belt and so forth. And so when Paul says we are to put on the belt, he says that which holds all things together, that which is the first piece of armor that we have to put on is the belt of truth. Now, the question we ask is, well, what does he mean by the belt of truth? This can be taken in two ways. It can mean truth with a capital T, what we would call objective truth. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, that is a bold and audacious claim, but that's what Jesus said. So, when we talk about buckling on the truth, the truth of the gospel, that is part of what I think Paul is talking about. He's saying, we have to buckle on the truth of God's word revealed. As Christian people, we buckle on the great doctrines of the Christian faith. That's one of the reasons why every Sunday, immediately following the sermon, we stand up and we profess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed, as Christians have done since the year 325. What are we doing? We're buckling on the truth. And we should be able to do that with confidence, not with our fingers crossed. I mean, just think sometime about the words of the creed. Do you really believe them when you say them? 
I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, His only Son, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, and on the third day rose again. Now, do you believe that? Rose again, bodily. We're not talking about some sort of mass hallucination here. We're not talking about the spirit of Jesus rising in the hearts of his disciples so that they went out and lived lives of sacrifice. Let me tell you something. One of the things that's most compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. You're not going to get that this Easter. You're going to get another sermon this Easter, but maybe next Easter you'll get the evidences for the resurrection. But one of the most powerful, in my opinion, evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the transformation that took place in the lives of the disciples. One of the things that I find so compelling about the biblical witness is that those men who are the heroes of the story, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they are not depicted as heroes. (laughs) They are depicted in the most negative way possible. Peter, who says, I'll go with you to prison even unto death. I don't trust James. And we all know about Judas. And John's young, but Lord, you can trust on me because I'm the rock. (laughs) Ends up denying the Lord three times, once to a little girl. And all the rest do what? Run away. Thomas said, if he's got to go to Jerusalem and die, let us go and die with him. I will not believe. I don't know what you people have been smoking, but unless I can see, unless I can put my finger in the nail prints, put my hand in his side, I will not believe. That is not a positive picture of the heroes of the story. The first eyewitnesses to the resurrection are not Peter and James and John. It's a group of women. And when they come back to tell the disciples about what they have seen, how they have encountered an angel, of how the stone had been removed, and the tomb was empty, when they come to find Peter, where are Peter and John? Hiding, locked behind bolted and barred doors. You can almost uh, see them opening the hatch. What is it? We've been to the tomb. He's not there. (laughs) What did you say? And that's the picture you get. they're, They're cowards. They are hiding for fear of the Sanhedrin, the very body that had condemned Jesus to death because they know that if they're found out to be his followers, what had happened to him was going to happen to them. Then you turn two pages in your Bible and all of a sudden Peter is standing up and preaching to the very same same Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus Christ to death. Now you say, well, what brought about that change? These men who had all hooked it run away All of these men that were cowards, that were locked behind bolted and barred doors, every single one of them, according to tradition, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death. Peter upside down, Andrew on an X-shaped cross. Only one, John, survived, and he died in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Now, what in the world accounts for that kind of a change? I'll tell you what accounts for that. Somebody coming back from the dead. That'll persuade you. So yes, when we puckle on the belt of truth, this is what we mean, the great truths of the gospel. And we don't have any wavering doubts about these things. I recognize that in this world, in a post-enlightenment world, we have a tendency to be skeptical. But there's really no reason to be skeptical. I just want you to think about this for a minute. If God can create the world, 
I mean, this is the problem for Thomas Paine, in my opinion. I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with him. You'd love to be there. Well, okay. But Thomas Paine could believe in a grand architect of the universe. Well, if you think about it, if you could believe in a God who can create the universe ex nihilo, out of nothing, by the sheer power of his word, let's face it, raising somebody from the dead is child's play. Isn't it? If you can believe that he fashioned every atom in your body, every molecule, that he actually designed the DNA, the genetic code that makes you run, makes all of life run, that he fashioned all the multiple galaxies and universes, if we live in a multiverse, whatever it is, if you can believe in that, if you can believe in a God who created that, what is so hard about raising somebody from the dead? So when you actually think through it, it doesn't make any sense to believe in one but to deny the other. So as Christians, we can buckle on that belt of truth, be absolutely confident, and bear in mind that there have been great minds over the course of the centuries who have had no wavering doubts about this. So we buckle on the belt of truth. But I said truth can be taken in two different ways. It can mean the great doctrines of the faith, and I think that is the starting point. But from that flows truth with a small t. One of the things that's so impressive about Jesus was that he was the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, but he also spoke truthfully because he was the truth. And as Christians, we need to be a people, because we are the people of the truth, who speak truthfully. We are often loose with the truth, aren't we? We are loose with the truth. Well, it was a little white lie. Well, I've asked you the question before, how rotten is rotten meat? Well, it's only got a little bit of rot in there. It's rotten. (laughs) There's only a little bit of sin in there. It's enough to kill you. So we are called to be a people of the truth, but as a consequence of that, we are to be truthful people. You'll never be able to do that unless you're a people of the word, by the way. Because the closer you get to God, the more like God you will become. Andrew Bonner was a famous Scottish minister for years in Scotland, and um, he had a small congregation for the most part. He was a very educated man, but the congregation was not, and uh, many of them were illiterate, and he had one man in particular that really wanted to learn how to read, and Bonner decided that, um, because the clergy were oftentimes among the more educated members of society, decided he was going to teach him how to read, and of course, he decided to teach him how to read by teaching him how to read the Bible, and so for months he labored with this man and he really began to catch on the man was a quick learner he became enthusiastic Bonner was called away for about three weeks when he returned uh, he went to visit this parishioner and the parishioner wasn't home but his wife was in the garden and he went up to her and he said well how's Alexander doing she said oh he's doing doing fine and he said how's his reading coming oh he's, he's doing very well with his reading well how's he getting through the Bible Oh, he gave up on the Bible weeks ago. He's now into the newspaper. (laughs) That's the way it is with many of us, isn't it? We get out of the Bible and we get into the newspaper. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading secular literature. I'm a big fan of it. But what I would tell you is it is no substitute for the Word of God. 
If you're going to buckle on the belt of truth, you need to know what the truth is, and you'll never know that unless you see it revealed to you in the Word of God. We need to be a people of the book. So buckle on the belt of truth. Buckle on the breastplate of righteousness. This is another one that can be used in two ways. I said I was going to get through this. We're not going to get through this, obviously. Uh, We're going to have one more class about this, so just hang in there with me. I will let the bishop figure it out. The breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness can be used in two senses as well. There is the sense of imputed righteousness. You and I are not righteous people. By righteous, I mean we are not in a right relationship with God. That's what righteous means. To be righteous means to be in a right relationship with God. Well, you and I are not that. So what does God do? He comes into this world to pay the price to make it possible for us to get into a right relationship with God. Mark Bouton is going to give you a really powerful illustration. I'm not much about props in the pulpit, but he's got a good one today. So you need to come and see the prop. And and you can't get the CD because you'll lose it. You you won't see it. And it's it's a visible thing, so you need to see. But it's a visible picture of what Christ has done for us or what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has made us righteous. Now, this is a legal declaration. Christ declares us to be righteous. You are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man may boast. That's what Paul says earlier in this epistle. So Christ comes into the world. He pays the price for our sins. We appropriate that gift by faith. And what happens? God declares us righteous. The same thing that a judge does. When a person is brought before the bar of justice, the judge declares them innocent. The judge is not saying they're perfect. What's the judge saying? That as far as the law is concerned, they are innocent. Based upon what Christ has done, having paid our fine, as it were, having paid the price for our redemption, what we do is we come before the bar of justice. God looks at us and he says, righteous. Not perfect, but declared righteous before the law because the price has already been paid. And therefore, we are made to come into a right relationship with God. And then God sends His Holy Spirit into our lives to dwell within us, to begin to transform us into the very thing that He has declared us to be. Now, you know the illustration that I've used for this before, and I want you to hold on to it. It's the illustration of a princess. There are some people that didn't think Meghan Markle was princess material. Now, I heard that. People say, oh, she's princess. She's Hollywood. She's not princess material, blah, blah, blah. Well, let me tell you something. She may have gone into the church. What was it? St. George's Chapel or I can't remember where they were married, but St. George's Chapel, I think. She may have gone in, Meghan Markle. When she came out, she was a princess. Now, you might say, well, she wasn't princess material. It doesn't matter. She was a princess. Now, we can all hope that she'll grow into the role and begin to act like the thing that she has become, but she is already a princess. That's what God has done with us, you see. He has declared us righteous. Now He begins by the power of His Holy Spirit to transform us into the very thing that He's declared us to be. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. But that means that if we have been declared righteous, we need to begin to act like righteous people. It does not stop with you getting your ticket punched and going to heaven. We are supposed to live like Christ. That's what the word Christian means, Christ one, a little Christ. So to buckle on the belt of truth is to buckle on the truth of God, but also truthfulness. 
to put upon us the breastplate of righteousness is the knowledge that God has declared us righteous in Christ by faith, but we are to live as righteous and holy people. This is one of the things that the younger generation really struggles with, with an older generation of Christians. They said, I know what you say, but there doesn't seem to be much authenticity with your life. We are to love one another. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, let me ask you the question, who's your neighbor? Jesus told a parable about this. Who's your neighbor? This is not a trick question. (laughs) Who is your neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. Do you love everybody? We're working on it. Well, it's a work in process. At least you're working on it, which is more than I can say. Some people have just given it up for loss. But this is what we're called to do, you see. This is what it means to buckle on the armor of God. It's 1016. Well shod. We'll get with that next week um, or two weeks from now. I want to finish up with well shod. We'll deal with the shield of faith because it's very interesting. Roman soldiers actually had two shields. One for close combat, but one when they attacked in a phalanx in a formal organization. And we'll take a look at that as well because what Paul is talking about here is not that personal shield. He's talking about marching in order, in a formation. And then we're going to look at the most important piece of the armor, of course, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the only piece of armor that is used not only for defense. Every other piece is for defense, to stand. But the last part of Watchman Nee's picture is what? Sit, stand, walk. Well, we are to stand our ground, but we are also to go on the offensive as the church. The scripture says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. You know, it's interesting when most people think of that expression, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. I don't know why they think this, but they think of the church as being behind the gates, being attacked by hell. But it says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Gates don't attack. Gates are for defense. And it's not the gates of the church. It's the gates of hell. It's it's the gates of hell that are closed. And we're doing the attacking. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In other words, you may maintain property on the defense, but you don't conquer territory by being on the defense. You have to be on the offense. C.T. Studd was one of the great muscular Christians in the 19, early part of the, the 20th century. He was a famous cricket player, the most famous cricketer in all of England. And he gave up a very promising athletic career in order to go into the mission field. And somebody asked him why. He said, some people want to live a comfortable life within earshot of the chapel bell. He said, I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. That's the Christian life, my friends. As another missionary said, the believer in Christ, the true believer in Christ, does not want to rust out. We want to burn out. My prayer is that we'll be that kind of a people. Not comfortable just sitting with an earshot of the chapel bell, living our nice little lives, But we will be a people, an army on the move, standing our ground 
and even moving forward to save lost souls, to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. There's a lot here. It takes us a while to get through it, but we thank you for it. Equip us, Lord, to be the kind of people that can make a difference in the world for your son, Jesus Christ, who leads us against the foe. We need to remember that the devil is a mighty foe, but he is a creature nevertheless. He is not the polar opposite of God. He doesn't have the, those incommunicable attributes. He is not omnipotent, all-powerful. He is not omniscient. And he is not all-knowing. And he is not omnipresent, but you are. And you give us every spiritual benediction necessary for us to go out and wage the war and to win the battle. Grant us the grace to do it for the sake of him who is our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. And I now hear the chapel bell. So.